Well, good morning. If you um, have a Bible near you, one of the ones in the seats, we're going to be on page 810 this morning, which is the the gospel reading that we just had from Matthew's gospel. That's uh, Matthew chapter 5. Again, page 810, or if you have a your own Bible or maybe a, a phone or something you're using, we're going to be a Matthew 5. We'll be getting started in that in just a moment. But first, let's pray. And so, Heavenly Father, we, we ask that you would please come on this morning and that you would please be our guide, our shepherd, our teacher, that we would behold more of who you are and that you would show us how to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we're starting a new series this morning as we enter into this season that is Lent called The Mirror on the Mount. Okay, and and what we're going to be doing for the next five weeks is we're going to be taking up five selected teachings, or passages I should say, from the teachings that compose the, the most famous sermon of all, ultimately, the the. The, ultimately, the discourse that is acknowledged as being the most significant ethical teaching both by, by Christian and non-Christian philosophers and, and activists and thinkers, and that is this Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you're wondering where the word mirror is coming from in the title, let me just share about that for a moment. You ever had the experience of looking in a mirror and knowing that the reflection that you're seeing is not necessarily 100% accurate? Um, you ever been maybe to a state fair or to a carnival and looked in a funhouse mirror and maybe you've looked a lot shorter than you really are uh, and maybe a lot wider than you really are and you're, you're kind of taken aback. It's not flattering, but you don't worry because you know it's not real, right? Or maybe you've had the opposite experience where um, you've been to uh, maybe a department store fitting room or maybe even um, a gym. I, know, I think some gyms do this. And you've had the experience where you're, you're, you're trying on clothes or you're getting ready and, and you look in the mirror and you look, you look pretty good in that mirror. <laughs> you ever had this experience and you look at it and you're like, am, am I losing weight? Like, I think I look okay. Can I buy this mirror and take this home? There's, and you start to realize as you look in it, that actually not just do you look thinner, but everything that you can see in that mirror. They've made that mirror to be just slightly distorted in. Now here's how this is going to connect to the Sermon on the Mount in our series that we're going to be in. First, all of us want to have a better sense of who we truly are, don't we? All of us want to have a better perspective of ourselves. And, and that's in all kinds of ways. On one hand, that's, that can be in, in the most, again, superficial or, or even just physical sense. Um, we want to know what we look like. If we have an important business meeting coming up or a date, we might check our teeth in the mirror right beforehand to make sure that the broccoli from our lunch is still not there. We don't want to look like an idiot. And at the same time, we know that this is not just a desire that we have in a superficial or physical sense, but we have this in the deepest senses of our soul. If we want to know who we really are, we have to be able to have an accurate reflection of who we are. And one of the best ways that we can do in order to get that sense is to actually look into the mirror that our Jesus' teachings 
And there's at least two reasons that we have to do it that way. One, we have to look outside of ourselves, don't we? If we, if we really want to understand who we truly are, we got to have a perspective that's coming from the outside. We can't look more deeply down in, but it, it has to come from outside of us. That's why, for example, places like in, in the Bible, like Proverbs, talk about having the counsel of other people. It's really important to have others speaking into us, the Bible says. We also just know this in everyday life. You know, the corporate world knows this. That's why so many places that do performance reviews will kind of do a, a 360 feedback assessment, won't they? And what's the premise there? The premise is that for this person, in order to have more knowledge of themselves and to understand better who they are and how they're doing, they got to have some sort of perspective from the outside. So we got to look outside, but at the same time, we also have to know that what we're looking at is accurate. So we, we don't get ready for church or for work in front of a funhouse mirror because we know it's not going to help. When it comes to maybe that feedback from work, we don't focus on the, the feedback from maybe one individual we work with that is negative and critical of everything that goes on in the world because we, we know there might be some sort of a, a filter that this is going through. What we need most is something that, again, can tell us who we really are. We, we need something that's 100% accurate. And friends, the claim of the Bible is that we cannot see any more pure and any more reliable moral standards of who we really are as human beings than the teaching of Jesus. If we really want to understand ourselves, there's, no, there's nothing that can give us a more authoritative and a more clear picture of ourselves. So in this season of Lent, which as, as we were saying earlier, as Andrew was sharing, many, many ways a season of, of self-examination and introspection. One of the ways that we're going to prepare for the excitement and the hope of the resurrection and Easter is by week by week coming to these different passages from the Sermon on the Mount and asking, what does Jesus want us to know in this passage? What, in what ways is Jesus maybe holding up a mirror to ourselves and teaching us about ourselves? And as he does that, in what ways maybe is, is his teaching shining a light, a spotlight onto the darker parts of our own hearts? And then finally, we're going to be thinking about in weeks to come, how is it that the person of Jesus and the gospel the good news about him ultimately help us to not just pretend as if these things don't exist, which is what every one of us wants to do, but to actually address them directly. Now, today's passage focuses on a subject that we don't really hear one another or, or Christians talk about a lot, and that is the challenge of anger. And as we get into today's passage, we're going to see at least two things related to anger. One, we're going to look at a very important observation that Jesus makes about the nature of anger. And then second, we're going to see the, the, the consequence of this observation. So in other words, we're going to see a way that what Jesus points out to us challenges at least one assumption that a lot of people have about exactly what Christianity ultimately is about. And so first, well, what is then this observation? If there's one thing that we need to know about Jesus' teaching in, on anger in, in this passage and maybe other passages in the Bible is that ultimately anger 
has the power to disqualify us from life with God. Anger has the potential to disqualify us from life with God. And that is to say that if, if, if we have anger, anger inside of us, if we're struggling with persistent, um, ongoing anger that we're ultimately, that we have to take responsibility for, we're, not allow, we're allowing to fester, Jesus is saying this ultimately has the power to put our future in jeopardy. So let's look at that now, and we're going to open up Matthew 5 and see exactly what's going on. If you have Matthew 5 in front of you, remember this opens in the, in the public ministry of Jesus' life. Um, and he's there. There's crowds around him. It says that he goes up on the mount and the disciples follow him. And then he starts to teach. And we start to read. Um, he begins with what's called the Beatitudes. So many of you have known those very well. Things like blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And then he continues and he gets into this series of teachings on the Christian life. About what it means to be one of his followers. What it means to be a disciple. And let's pick up now at verse 21. We're going to focus primarily on 21 and 22 today if you have that in front of you. He says, You've heard of, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, Everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So Jesus obviously starts out here with the sixth commandment, okay? So you shall not murder. This is something that they would have all known well. But, but notice as we look at this and as we continue on in these passages that are coming afterwards, we're seeing a formula that Jesus is going to repeat, which he's going to say, look, you've, you've heard it said this, but I say to you this. And what's going on there? If you, if you have that Bible in front of you, look just before it. Remember, Jesus has just told them that he's coming. And as he comes, he's not coming to, he uses the phrase, abolish the law. In other words, Jesus is not coming and he's, he's not trying to get rid of all of the teachings and, and the, the statutes that they had learned about in the Old Testament of what it meant to have a relationship with God. But he says, ultimately, I'm coming to fulfill the law. And so with a teaching like what he's giving them today, he's not abrogating the law. He, he, he's saying, look, the law says this, but I'm taking it to a whole other level. And listen up. And then look at what he says again in, in 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire of hell. In other words, there's a sense in, in which Jesus is saying, look, you've, you've probably been under the impression that when it comes to this thing that is hate, when it comes to this thing that is anger, you may have understood that the only thing that can make you guilty before God when it comes to hate is the ultimate expression of hate, which is taking the life of the person that we're angry at. But what he wants us to know is that if, if, when it comes to anger, if we are gripped by anger, particularly anger at a brother, um, this is referring to another member of, our, of the religious community, a fellow disciple. If you're gripped by that kind of anger, you're also guilty. 
You're not innocent. And then notice what he says the result of that is, of that guilt. Jesus talks about anger in a way that you almost hear none of us talk about with each other. And that is that he says that this actually has the power to keep you from living with God in eternity. That's what's happening here. So when, as we read on in, in these verses, when, when he talks about judgment, when he talks about being liable to the council, you know, at, at, the, at those moments, we, not, we think that we know where Jesus is going, but we might not be 100% sure. But when we get to the third of those three constructions, we think it's, it's pretty clear. The end of verse 22. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. In other words, all three of these constructions are pointing ultimately to the judgment of God as a result of anger. Anger can disqualify us from life with Him. Now, some of us look at this, if we're honest, don't we? And, and, and we think, like, does Jesus really mean that? Like, does Jesus really say that, that something like, like ang- we can go to hell just for being angry? First, I just want to pause for a second and say, if you're someone here this morning and you struggle with the idea of hell or, and, and believing is this something that's real, um, that's a really important thing to talk about. And we as, as leaders would love to be able to engage with you on that. To put it shortly, Jesus definitely believed in it. Jesus would talk about it all the time. And, and the Bible describes it as a, as a real place where those who would rather worship ourselves or others before God are given the opportunity to go and to do that forever. But to go back to our question, we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus really implying that we could risk going somewhere like that all because of anger? And that might sound kind of surprising at first, but when you take a little time, when you slow down, when you think about it, when you think about the nature of, of sin, the way that the Bible talks about sin, this slowly starts to make sense. And just one other important caveat. When Jesus is talking about anger here, he's not painting all anger with the same brush. Okay, um, and we know that for many reasons. Just for example, if, if you've read Matthew's gospel, you know Jesus is going to say this in Matthew 5. And then later in Matthew 21, he's going to go into the temple courts, and what's he going to do? He's going to turn them over. He's angry. Is Jesus contradicting himself about what he said earlier in that moment? Is he guilty of what he was saying? No. What Jesus is showing us is that there, there is a form of righteous anger. There is a way of responding to wrongdoing or injustice that's appropriate. It's not what Jesus is talking about in this passage. Jesus is not saying that we are risking our salvation every time that we get flustered watching a football game or maybe if someone uh, bumps into the back of us on 280 going two miles an hour. That's not what he's talking about. What, but what he is talking about and what he's implying, if that any of us is allowing frustration and resentment in our hearts to fester inside of us in such a way that it overflows out of our mouths in the form of an insult. Okay, saying something like, you fool. When it says that in verse 22, that's, like, that's basically an Aramaic semi-curse word. The, the, you know what I'm talking about, the, the intense deep frustration with someone else that just overflows out of us. If these are the long-term and ongoing dynamics within our heart, the sustained kind of bitterness and resentment towards someone, then it's possible, Jesus is saying, 
we might not be the Christian that we think that we are. And the reason is obvious because he's saying anyone that has come to know the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ, anyone that knows what he has done for us in Jesus doesn't have the choice of holding on to anger like that. Because whatever this person has done to us is as, as real and as painful as it might be is nothing in comparison to the way that we've turned our back on God. So in the end, yeah, there is a sense in which anger is disqualifying us from life with God, but there's an even, the even deeper issue that disqualifies us from life with him is where, where sin still has a grasp on us and we are not living out a life that is totally surrendered to God. Okay. That's why this is an extreme because the anger, again, that we're talking about, this is not just a momentary fleeting emotion that happens for a split second of a man or woman that is walking in repentance, in faith before God. This is, this is a much more deeply rooted response that should make us question, is it possible that the gospel has not taken root in our lives to the degree that we hope and pray that it has? So this is just one way that Jesus today and in the series we're going to see is holding up a mirror before us. He's, he's asking us to look into it, to look into his standards, to see ourselves and to see ourselves as we really are and ask ourselves, is it possible that there's anything in this area of our lives that's there that we might not naturally want to see? So that's, that's the observation that he makes, that, that, that anger has the ability to disqualify us really from the kingdom. Now let's just look at one of the consequences of this because this is, this is a really interesting point that Jesus is making that definitely challenges one of the ways that we often hear people talk about Christianity in our culture and in our, um, in our movies and on TV. And here's how. Isn't it true that most of the time maybe when you're watching a movie or, or, or maybe when you're engaging with a, a friend at work and you're talking about Christianity, isn't it true that people ultimately will, will often talk about Christianity as if, it, if, as if the Christian life boils down to being a good person? Talking about it purely in, in moral terms. And just as an example of this, I want to um, mention a, a TV show that some of you have seen. Some of you all have seen, some of you have seen the, the show on CBS called The Good Place. And if you haven't seen this, this is a a show with Ted Danson and uh, another young actress named Kristen Bell. And in season one, it starts with this young woman arriving in this community, and it's, it's a utopian-like community. It kind of looks like heaven, or it's intended to look like that. And what she's told is that everyone has gotten to that place based on how moral a life they lived before they died. So she's told everyone that is there was given a scorecard based on the things that they did in their lives. And those with the highest scores are ultimately led into the good place and, and everybody else ultimately goes to the other place. And the premise of the show, or what we as the audience know that nobody else knows except she and, and soon other close friends, is that Kristen Bell's character is actually there by mistake. So there's been some sort of administrative error, and people think that she actually lived another woman's life in her life on earth. And this person was very different. She was essentially a saint. She was a, 
uh, a civil rights attorney. She's, Kristen learns, uh, her character learns, she discovers that this woman would go and, and she, she would visit uh, orphans in Ukraine. She spent all of her paid vacation time doing good things. It's not the life that she lived. And we start to see she was no, it turns out, moral or virtuous person. We start to learn, in fact, the opposite. When she was living, she was actually a really self-centered person. And so, and this is done in humorous ways, by the way. But we we learn, for example, that she was working for this company as a salesperson selling prescription medication to to elderly people that she knew didn't work. Okay, she's, she's heartless. Or there's, there's other little things in relationships, too. Like she promises a friend that she's going to, uh, pardon me, she promises a friend that she's going to look after her dog as her friend goes out of town, and then ultimately she backs out on that last minute, and she goes to a Rihanna concert in Vegas. She's not necessarily the person that we would want to have as our best friend. And so what she decides to do, and what becomes the first several episodes, is she decides in order to fit in, in order to not be discovered, she's going to work closely with a friend who happens to have, I think it's a PhD in ethics, in order to learn how to become a moral person so she can stay. Now, that's a funny premise. But isn't it true that's the way a lot of people think about Christianity? isn't Isn't there a sense for a lot of people that in the end, the good place is ultimately a place that we get to by being a good person, and, and that we're all getting a scorecard in some way. But listening to, to Jesus here, okay, you can't come to any other conclusion that a moral life, a life of doing everything right, or, or the life of being a good person is not enough, because to Jesus' point, you can't, you, it's possible, it's entirely possible to do all the right things and still be guilty in the eyes of God. This is why, for example, some of you know in the Gospels, Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees on another occasion, and he's, and he's talking to them, and he starts criticizing them. And he, this is a, a group of very religious people that inwardly um, did not honor him. And he calls them hypocrites, and he cites Isaiah saying, look, these people, you honor me with your lips? but your hearts are far from me. You can be doing all the right things and inside still be like whitewashed tombs, he says. The problem, Jesus says, is ultimately that we not only have a morality issue, but that we have a heart issue. And this, I hope, if you were with us, um, if you were with us on Wednesday at the Ash Wednesday service, We also saw this in the passage in Matthew 6 that CJ had us looking at. If you haven't had the opportunity, I encourage you to go listen to the sermon from that day. We we saw, and he reminded us, that God cares about internal realities in our lives just as much as he cares about the external realities. He he cares about our hearts. He cares about our, our motives, our loves, our thoughts. And that's a really scary thing to think about. I remember when I was growing up, and I was trying really hard to be the nicest person I could, um, and I, under, I, I perceived that that's what it meant to be a, a good Christian. I remember having a youth leader ask, okay, Brian, how would you feel if, maybe it was said to the whole group of us middle school kids, um, how would you respond if you went to a college football game and up on the jumbotron, however, 100 feet, whatever that thing is, 
um, for the whole stadium to see was every thought that you've had during the day. How would you respond to that? And in that moment, I mean, I thought I was a pretty good kid. But in that moment, I knew that was not good news for me. Because I knew that I was not perfect. And I knew that there were things that not only I had done that I shouldn't have done, but things that I had thought that I should not have thought. And all the, the point of all this is to say, if what we've been looking at in Jesus' teaching about anger is true, and, and ultimately what we're also going to be discovering about other things that we'll be looking at in this series of passages, then nobody's got a better scorecard than anybody else. You see that? No, nobody's ahead of anybody else in line. Gandhi's not ahead of other people. Mother Teresa's not ahead of anybody else. Instead, we find, instead what we find is that our hearts, again, equally have the power to disqualify us. And if that's the case, then we are all disqualified. Because even for those of us who might look like we've got it all together, we know that none of us is perfect internally. And so as we start to close, let's actually go back just for a second to that show, The Good Place. On one hand, the, the premise of The Good Place, at least if you were to say that this is trying to critique Christianity, which I don't think it's doing exclusively, but if, if we were to say that that's what's going on, then we could obviously say that the, the premise of The Good Place is, is totally wrong. But there's at least one sense in which the, the premise of The Good Place is right on target when it comes to Christianity. And that's this. Remember we said that that main character, this young woman that finds herself in the good place, she learns that she's there because she's been made, she's been qualified to be there by somebody else's life, somebody else's perfect life. It, it wasn't the life that she lived, but it was the life that someone else lived that was credited to her name. And friends, this is exactly what we believe as Christians. This is what we call the gospel. So we... So the Apostle Paul writes about in that passage we read at the beginning of the service from 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says this, talking about God the Father and His Son Jesus. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So in other words, if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, all of our sin, all of our shame, all the things that we've ever done that we know we shouldn't, and, and all the guilt associated with that, and the punishment that we deserve that's associated with that, Jesus is taking on all those things. And what are we getting in return? We're getting his righteousness. And if that's not a big deal to you, you either don't think you're that bad a person or you don't understand who Jesus really is. We get his righteousness. God the Father, we can stand before him and we don't have to cover ourselves up like Adam and Eve. We can stand before him confident and proud without shame because we've been united with Jesus and we have his righteousness. We're clothed in his righteousness. And so as we close this morning, I want to go back to just for a second to Jesus' words on anger. Do you see now why if we still have this kind of anger in us towards especially a a brother or a sister in the Lord, someone else that also has been united with Jesus' righteousness. Do you see how there's kind of a gospel um, cognitive dissonance in that moment? 
that, that if we are there and we are harboring hate and frustration towards someone else and, and we are unwilling to reconcile with them, that somehow the gospel penny still hasn't dropped for us. There is something that we're not getting. wish I had more time this morning because what I'd love to do is then continue in our passage and look at this emphasis that Jesus has on the consequence of this. Is in light of this, in light of this teaching on anger and this warning, be reconciled to your brother and sister. Okay, yes, um, bringing a gift to the altar before me, a sacrifice for God is a good thing, but, but first and foremost, you need to go and you need to be reconciled to that person. And, and that may apply to some of us here. Um, some of us may have people either here or in close proximity to us that frankly we're angry with. We're ticked. And we need to know that we have to seek to be reconciled to that person. Does that mean that we're going to feel great about that person? Not necessarily. Does that mean, based on whatever has happened in that relationship, it's going to look the same going forward? That we might trust that person to the same degree? Maybe not. But if you believe that Jesus Christ has taken on all of your sin and all of your shame, that he's lived the perfect life that you could never live, and he has now credited that to you, by faith in him. There is no way that we cannot seek to be, make amends with our brothers and sisters that are following us. And so that's the question I was forced to ask myself this week as I was looking at this passage. And, and the question I'll hold out before you, is there anyone in your life where God would have that, have you pursue that sort of reconciliation? Or even looking at this mirror today of his holy standards, what have you learned about yourself in regards to your own experience of anger? And, and is there any way in that God has shined a spotlight on your own need for him? We're going to continue doing this week after week until we approach that great day of Easter where we know we can look to our Savior and we can celebrate, that <laughs> we can celebrate the resurrection and we can celebrate the joy we have in him and having his righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you're teaching um, brings healing to relationships and protects us from isolation uh, with one another. And we pray, Lord, that you would please have mercy on us in any areas of our hearts where we're experiencing right now anger or bitterness towards another person. We pray that you would please help us to be freed from that, to lay it at your feet, even at this moment. Lord, please help us to pursue healing with those from whom we're estranged. And Lord, in the weeks to come, please continue to teach us about who we really are, that we might remember who we really are in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.